The year is 2010. It's Father's Day. We're at Pebble Beach, and Dustin Johnson is leading the U.S. Open. He's looking to win his first major. He's won at Pebble Beach two years in a row. But again, this is the U.S. Open. It's different. It's our annual grind fest. DJ is joined on the leaderboard by Tiger Woods, Ernie Els, Phil Mickelson, Graham McDowell, and a no-name, Gregory Havray. It's breezy, and it's about to get a lot of fun right here on a pod unlike any other. All right, folks, this is not the Masters. This is the U.S. Open. We have a special U.S. Open-themed pod unlike any other. And joining me today is a man who knows Pebble Beach as well as anybody. It's Alan Shipnuck. Shippy, how well do you remember 2010 at Pebble? Oh, vividly. I mean, it is a huge deal anytime the U.S. Open comes to Pebble. That place has always had a way of defining its era, whether it's Jack in 72, Watson in 82, Kite in 92. He's not quite the same caliber of player, but you know this was the sort of the post-Norman and Watson pre-Tiger era of parody. So you win one major and it caps your career. So in that regard, he was the perfect champion. Of course, we know what Tiger did in 2000. So the fact that it was it was coming back again was a uh, was a big deal. And then you had all these storylines with with Tiger post scandal trying to find himself. Then on Sunday, you had Phil and Ernie playing together. You had Dustin trying to come through as this next generational talent. So uh, it it had the fixings of a, of a great finish. And of course, uh, Pebble Beach was just playing so beautifully firm and fast oh, yeah. and fiery. Uh, it, it was it was a heck of an open and um, at least the setup. Now, the, the delivery was maybe lacking and we'll get to that. But uh, I remember waking up on that Sunday and I could barely breathe. I was so excited. Well, someone tweeted at me uh, last week basically that it's probably one of the more underrated and overrated majors, depending on who you talk to, like very underrated based off of who's involved, but kind of overrated on eventually the golf that you see because there's just way, way, way more bogeys. But you mentioned a bunch of the, the characters, and let's list them all off here. We got Dustin Johnson, who's 25 years old. He's number 29 in the world. He has won the last two Pebble Beach Pro-Ams, so that's a different course at a different time of year, but you know, DJ actually owns Pebble, but this is like pre-Gretzky's DJ, pre-drug suspension DJ. He's absolutely nuking the course. Yeah, I mean, Dustin was freewheeling, and... Well, he's got that little soul patch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was, he was clean-shaven, uh, but he, he was very much Myrtle Beach Dustin, and, uh, you know, he was... This is one thing I remember pretty vividly, is on Sunday, before Dustin went out and played, um, he, you know, he was the last guy at the range, and... Uh, Sunday at, at the majors is so intense because two by two, the players disappear. And then it's only the leaders mm-hmm. left at the range. And Butch was his teacher and he scrummed with some of us reporters and his, his words were measured, but you could, he was like, like the, the cat that swallowed the canary. You could just see how excited Butch was because he felt like Dustin was going to go out there and, and win one for the ages and kick off this incredible career. And uh, so there was this feeling in the air, like we're witnessing something special, you know? Um, and, um, now <laughs> we know it didn't quite play out that way, but for sure, Dustin had kind of set the course on fire and people were excited about this coronation. DJ had hit, he had hit 74% of his greens in regulation through 54 holes, which at a U.S. open that is that firm and fast is absolutely crazy. Uh, to keep rattling off the guys that are involved here, we got G Mac, Graham McDowell. He's 30 years old. He's won five times on the European tour, but never on the PGA tour. Most notably, he had just won the Celtic Manor Wales Open two weeks ago, so he's playing well. We've got Gregory Havray, who you mentioned, a Frenchman who is playing his first U.S. Open, his fourth major. He was a sectional qualifier. He is the 301st ranked player in the world. You're going to see on the broadcast how he got into and through the qualifier he made a 50 footer to get into a playoff and then a 15 footer in the playoff just to get involved in this tournament and if you think about him he is exactly what the u.s open is kind of about at some point where it is a qualifier anyone in the world with a certain handicap and is good enough can get into this event and claim a spot and claim a chance so he is 
a very fun figure to kind of just pay slight attention to throughout the entire broadcast. And lastly, we've got Tiger Woods, Ernie Els, and Phil Mickelson. That's the number one player, the number seven player, and the number two player in the world. Tiger's on the kind of comeback to the PGA Tour from his infidelity scandal. That is very fresh in everyone's mind. Ernie is a two-time U.S. Open champ. He's probably playing the best of these three. And then you got Phil, five-time, at this point, runner-up in the U.S. Open. Everyone knows that story. He just won the Masters a couple months prior. So some of the best players in the world. When you think about this podcast and this broadcast, it's different. This isn't CBS. This is not the Masters. This is NBC. So we have Bob Costas introing. The venue befits what is at stake. America's National Golf Championship will be decided at Pebble Beach. We've got Dan Hicks on the call, Johnny Miller playing color. These gentlemen today have a chance to put their name on this tree. What What is going through their minds right now? Well, the last day of a U.S. Open is uh, really all about... Um, Basically keeping your nerves together and somehow not getting in front of yourself, uh, playing, you know, basically. We got Dottie Pepper, Peter Jacobson, Boom Mikes all over the course picking up player caddy conversations. So, I mean, all the Masters broadcasts are available on YouTube, and this is one of the few U.S. Open ones on YouTube. It's great. You should go watch it. Well, and you mentioned Johnny. I mean, he is so clearly the star of this show. I mean, he has more star power than almost any player in the field. And he just dominates this telecast. I mean, the other announcers are just there to throw him softballs. And he's just hitting home run after home run. He He's unsparing. You, you can almost, you can, the disdain is dripping from his voice when he's talking about Tiger. And he, he uses the, the euphemism of troubles, you mm-hmm. know, because you got to remember, I mean, the Tiger had just been through the worst shaming of the internet age. Uh, you know, the scandal had, was still raging and came back to the Masters, and it was a tournament unlike any other with the security and, and just the, the feeling in the air. And now he's trying to settle in and return to normal. So he's still number one in the world ranking because he's accrued so many points. But his game is raggedy. His life is a bonfire. Yeah, he, so he's, he's not going to play that well today, and we're going to talk more about him later. But his uh, post-round interview with Mark Rolfing last all of 20 seconds. Very much, Dan. Uh, Tiger, when you look back on today, what will you take positive out of this round today? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, I made, uh, I was telling Stevie, we made three mental mistakes today, and uh, all thing it cost us was a chance to win the Open. All right. Well, you gave it a good shot, but didn't get there. Thanks, man. One answer, one question, end of interview, peak Tiger. Yeah, the, the idea that he was on some sort of goodwill tour to uh, you know win back the hearts and minds of golf fans that was real that was a real tiger he had serious red ass coming off that course because he knew he played so bad and yet he was in it till the bitter end and he really could have should have won it and, uh, and and just to set the stage a little more on Saturday uh, of that open tiger went nuts on the back yeah. nine he shot 31 and it was the most electric golf he had played you know post scandal and it really helped set the table for Sunday and this feeling like, is, is there some magic left in this guy? Uh, yeah, that, that interview is a, is a classic of the genre of pissed off Tiger. Let's, uh, before we get into basically the nuts and bolts of how the championship goes down, let's talk about some must-see moments that people can check out that don't really have a whole lot to do with the championship. First off, two hours and 48 minutes in, Roger Maltby calls Dustin Johnson Dustin Hoffman, which I thought was great. At like three hours and 50 minutes, Ernie is playing the 10th hole and he hits his ball into like this cliff kind of, it's a hazard on the right side. And in order for him to try and find his ball, which is really tough, you can't, you got to climb down that grassy cliff. And he shows how paranoid he and other players are about the rules because he asks a rules official if he can put his hands on the ground, if he can walk down the cliff to find his ball, like that's where we were with the rules and the USGA players are afraid to step forward without permission. And we'd see that carry on throughout much of the decade. Thankfully we've advanced past that part of the rules, but it took us a long time. Well, I thought that showed some composure by Els because that, that is a steep sheer cliff. And so uh, he's inside of a, you know, red lined hazard and 
um, just to try and navigate this tangly terrain, you know, it was like, he's probably gonna have to use his hands not to fall to his death. And so, yeah, one, one false step and you could really tumble. And that, that little like moment is great because he's searching for a lost ball. Who knows if it would have trickled all the way down to the beach, but you've got a couple dozen people like trying to sort of think about helping him find his golf ball. And I ended up tweeting this out that like name another sport in which people who aren't even at the event can help you find your tools to like keep your championship alive. There's no sport like that. Yeah, no, no doubt. And I mean, I walk my dog on that beach now every day and occasionally a ball comes whizzing (laughs) down in the sand. I'll stand there and watch some 20 handicap, you know, slash around on Carmel beach. But it was really funny because you could see the ga- the crowd gathering behind Ernie. And they're like, "Should we jump up there and help him?" Nah, that looks too dangerous. Uh, and it was just it was just a funny moment, but it's also a pivotal moment, you know, when he makes a double bogey there. So that whole scene of him, you know, tromping around in the weeds is is, is great stuff. How about the uh, the four hour mark? This is this is kind of fun, but it, it's telling at the time. Hicks goes on to tease. There's live streaming of the seventh and seventeenth holes, which it's a promo read. It's timely. It makes sense. But McDowell and DJ, the final pairing, are already on the eighth hole. So live streaming of the seventh is no longer uh, relevant. But it is a great peek at, like, this happened 10 years ago, right? This week, 10 years ago. And now, this week, at Colonial and at the RBC Heritage, you can actually live stream just about, you know, Shots from almost everybody in the field. Like every shot at the Players' Championship is streamed. Every shot at the Masters is streamed. Everything is streamed. And uh, we've come a long way in 10 years. Yeah, it's it's a relic, though. I mean, it really so much has changed in, in 10 years. But um, it, as I said earlier, I liked it. It was it was kind of it was a throwback. And it felt like it could have been 1980. So I, I enjoyed watching this telecast just from the um, no bells and whistles, just pure golf. One thing I really enjoyed was Tom Watson finishing up. This is at the, about the four-hour and 52-minute mark. Watson's walking up 18. He's getting a hero's welcome. His son is caddying for him. It's Father's Day. He's getting choked up because Pebble Beach is such an important place for him where he won the U.S. Open in 1982. You know What's really sad about it is he hits a great bunker shot on 18 to about a foot, maybe 18 inches. He's kind of fighting back the tears. He has a great chance at birdie, and he shoves the 18-inch putt like really hard. Birdie actually coming out of there, and he missed it. He wanted that so badly. I had a feeling he might do something like that. Uh, so it's like really sad moment, but then he makes the par putt. It loops around and into the hole, and he crow hops on the green and launches his ball into the ocean, which was a fun moment. And he's going to do an interview later uh, with Dan Hicks. And uh, this Stillwater Cove, you, you give it, give her her, uh, her due. And if, if she doesn't take it off the tee, give her a ball or two. Yeah, I mean, Watson's a romantic, you know, and Pebble Beach stirs those emotions. That's one of the things that's just neat about the heritage. You know, you get these flashbacks to Nicholas's one iron, to, yeah. to Watson's chip in, to Kite's chip in, you know, the Tigers six iron out of the rough on number six when Rogers says it's not a fair fight, you know, that, yeah, uh, there's some grace notes, the telecast, they brought back some of that history and, and uh, that, that was, that was pleasurable. All right, let's dive into the nuts and bolts early on in the broadcast. Uh, as far as when we were watching, Phil has the crowd behind him. He's playing Phil golf, right? He's hitting aggressive shots and missing easy putts. He drives the green on four and then three putts from like 12 feet. Ernie is playing well. Johnny Miller says of Tiger that people are starting to accept him. They're starting to pull for him again. And the entire thing swings on the second hole because Dan Hicks and the broadcast, they're talking about DJ, his prowess. He made a par on one and they interviewed DJ the night before and they asked him, does he get nervous? And DJ said, yeah, I get nervous. He provides probably one of the most elaborate DJ responses that I've ever heard. I get nervous. I just might not show it, um, but it's a good nervous. It's not bad. It's, you know, if, if I didn't get nervous, I think I'd start to worry about it. But, you know, I think even Tiger said one time, the first time I'm not nervous when I step on the first tee is when I, I quit playing golf. But, you know, it means so much to us, and we work so hard that you've you got to feel some nerves. And, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't. And they're going to end up using that nerves answer against him for about the next hour because 
he leaks his approach shot into number two into this gnarly rough. Now, I don't even remember the rough being this ridiculous last year during the 2019 U.S. Open, but the best DJ can do from the rough, greenside, mind you, is hit lefty. And so he hits this little chunky lefty shot about three feet forward. And so he's still in the rough. And then he very quickly flubs his shot from the rough another three feet forward. So he is all of a sudden freaking out. Things are moving very quickly. He flop shots it onto the green, has a short putt left for double, misses it. Epic shove. Lead is gone. Johnny says, I don't think his brain is working at this moment. That was almost whiff, but a touch of hosel got there to help him. There's so much to unpack with Dustin. Um, you know, first of all, the rough really wasn't that bad, but they, they let it go around the edges of the bunkers just, just to give them definition, make it look kind of wooly. And uh, he, I mean, he hits like a 370-yard missile on the second hole. He's got a wedge in, mm-hmm. hits this horrible, thin, skanky fan, and it's just, it's his bad luck. It, it hangs up in the, kind of on the, the lip, the face of this bunker. And, you know, his decision to play lefty was so quick. He never even stood down in the bunker to see if he could, if he could gouge it out right-handed. He went lefty so fast and, you know, hit, hit it about six feet. It was, okay, whatever. He still has a lot of green to work with, a flat lie to a flat pin, very easy up and down to save bogey and no no big deal. Um, but instead of just playing kind of a safe, conservative bump and run, he tries to do this ludicrous flop shot, and which he didn't have to do. There's nothing between him and the hole but just green. And he goes right under it. And uh, as Johnny says, this is a quote, it's a touch of whiff with a little hosel. <laughs> It's like he's making a recipe for disaster. And and then Dustin does the exact same shot again after only moving the ball a couple feet. This one he pulls off and hits a pretty good shot to about four feet, but then hits a horrible putt. I mean, it's just a snuff film. It is so hard to watch. Like the entire trajectory of Dustin Johnson's career and life changed, and it happened so fast. He played all those shots so quickly you could just see it spinning out of control and you know this touched off a whole decade of frustration you think about all the other majors that got away totally did uh, you know including the brain fart at whistling straits hitting an ob at royal saint george Uh, you go on down the list and i think it was the scar tissue from pebble i mean you hear about stroke victims and how they have to learn to talk again and their brain gets like actually rewired and the neurons, uh, the, the alchemy of the brain changes. I think that happened to Dustin Johnson on the second hole at Pebble Beach and he's never totally recovered. He goes from six under to one under in about 15 minutes. And I mean, you end up realizing this guy's not going to win the Open, but you also realize... He's got another 15 holes to play at this brutal golf course. He's going to get his his teeth kicked in time and time again, and it's not going to stop. Well, we got to talk about what happens after the triple bogey. So now Dustin goes to the third hole, which is a risk-reward, short par four. A good number of players hit driver off this tee. But they didn't just make a triple bogey to, to blow the lead at the U.S. Open. So he pulls driver. I mean, all he has to go, he can go four iron wedge. He hits driver and jacks it way left, almost onto the 16th green, sets off this epic search party. And, you know, they go to commercial break. Dustin's looking for his ball. They come back from commercial break. He's still looking for his ball. And this is the ultimate kick in the nuts. They find it mm-hmm. when he's 19 seconds after the five-minute mark. So he has to make the walk of shame back to the tee. And it's two good shots. Actually, he has about a 25-footer to save bogey. It spins out. like You just know this guy is so cursed. Then he steps to the fourth tee. Now, four is playing short. The tees are up. Phil had driven the green. Keimer had driven the green. It was a thing that was happening. But Dustin has gone triple, double. Again, he can go five iron wedge and just get his feet under him. He tries to drive the green, and he fans it off the planet, makes another bogey. It was like his his brain had gone haywire. Johnny called it. And, you know, we had this kind of... this. 
This local guy who was a Pebble Beach caddy who met Dustin early in his career became his regular tour caddy, but was not like a grizzled veteran. And if anyone ever needed a hard-ass caddy just to, to get in his face and say, dude, what are you doing? But it didn't happen. And it was just like watching a train wreck in super slow-mo. It was so painful. Oh, Dustin. All right, let's reset. So DJ has gone from six under now to even through four. Uh, G-Mac is just cruising along. He makes four pars to start his day. He's at three under in the lead. Ernie Els, meanwhile, he gets to make a birdie at six. So he ties G-Mac for the lead at three under. Uh, Gregory Havre cruising along. He is, he makes a birdie at six. So he's at two under he's one shot back. Phil's at even tigers at one over Davis love has made Eagle. He's at one over, but the thing is everyone's in. I mean, tiger playing like crap, absolutely playing like crap is four shots back. So yeah, let's take a moment to talk about Phil because he comes out like a house on fire makes this incredible curling 30-footer on number one, goes for birdie, goes to 2T, hits a 393-yard bomb, has just a flip wedge in, fails to convert. On the third hole, hits it in fairway bunker, but then incredible shot to like eight feet, misses that. Steps to four, drives the green, three putts for par. I mean, he could have been four or five under, um, and instead, he, you know, he's, he's one under, but he's given up so much. And uh, I'd like to pause for one quick moment and let's appreciate the seventh hole and pebble itself. Because now that the guys are moving towards seven, on this day, a very windy day at Pebble Beach, the seventh hole is playing 92 yards. A major championship professional golf hole is playing 92 yards. You could throw it onto the green. But people struggle with this 3.2 scoring average on Sunday. That is such the perfect mind-bending U.S. Open like type of hole. I absolutely adore it. Well, the green was really firm, and that just got in the head of so many players. Now, they put the pin in the back. It wasn't that hard a shot. Just land it on the front and let it roll back there. But, of course, there is a big bunker in the, in the front of the green. And so guys were carrying it too far and bouncing over the green and I'm like, I remember Ian Poulter going, how the heck am I supposed to stop the ball on the green? You know, I, well, you can't land it halfway there, homie. You got to land in the front or you have to put more spin or you have to alter your trajectory. But it was playing downwind and it was quite a little riddle. Uh, but, you know, guys hit some shots there, but it was challenging. You have, you have a sand wedge. You have a 60 degree wedge in your hand. Hit the shot. Uh but that's, you know, that's the thing about Pebble. It's a finesse golf course, but the, the targets are small. I mean, it, to me, it's the like the quintessential U.S. Open course. And if you want to understand that, don't go back and watch Gary Woodland's win last year because he got to like, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 under to win. Like Pebble at its peak is going to play right around even par, maybe a couple under and be really, really fun. It's windy, tough, firm, fast as hell. The gettable, you know, holes are actually all gettable with good shots, but they're all also very ripe for three-putting. Every single green you could three-putt out there, especially when they're that fast. Um, if you want to be aggressive, like, there are cliffs that your good tee shots will roll off of. Tiger thought he had a great tee shot on six, and it rolled off the cliff. So that those kind of things, like, make the U.S. Open just a pressure-packed, I don't know, nasty thing. Well, yeah, just to compare the open setups, you know, there's a human element to how these golf courses get set up. And coming in 2019, the USDA was coming off the debacle at Shinnecock and they could not lose Pebble Beach. And it was freakishly warm Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday practice rounds. And they just drowned the golf course. I talked, I saw the water report. They were using two and a half times the amount of water that Pebble would take on a normal day. And it was just so soft and mushy. And, and no then wind. you got the June gloom, the, the, the typical summertime fog that we always get. And then they could never get the, the course dried out. There was no fire in the golf course. I understand the USGA had to err on the side of caution, but the 2019 setup had no teeth. Totally. So GMAC is being 
playing very steady golf. Ernie ends up making a bogey on nine, a double on 10, and a bogey on 11. So he drops four shots in a really quick span there. Uh, Through the first 62 holes, Graham McDowell has hit 92 putts, which at a U.S. Open to me is insane. 92 putts in 62 holes. So he's he's putting better than a one and a half putts per green at what is apparently supposed to be the toughest putting tournament they face all year long. So that's pretty incredible and unsustainable. GMAC is going to end up making a bogey on 9 and 10. So he's going to drop back to 2 under. Well, so let's talk about GMAC for a second. It was a pleasure to watch him navigate this golf course. He was playing with Dustin, who's 75 yards longer. But he's all over the place. And GMAC, just that controlled little draw. They're not even showing DJ's shots. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, at some point, Dustin just ejected from the telecast. But... But McDowell is just playing some some really nice, calculating U.S. Open golf. It's not flashy. He only makes one birdie the whole mm-hmm. day. But he's hitting fairways. He's hitting greens. Who is going to take it from and, him? And, you know, he's, he's missing in, in the right places. Now, he makes bogeys at, at 9 and 10. And that brings a lot of guys back into the tournament. All of a sudden, Havre is right there. He's one shot back. And, you know, this guy is a real Cinderella story. He's never played in U.S. Open. He's 300-something in the world ranking. Totally unknown. You know, all we know about French golf is that Jean Vandeville turned into Inspector Clouseau. His swing is and good. His swing is kind of like a, he's like a taller version of Louis Oosthuizen, I think. Very smooth swing. Yeah. I mean, Havre was impressive. He, he is a classic U.S. Open grinder. I mean, he had the best control of his golf ball the whole time. And he was rolling, he was rolling his putts beautifully. Great speed. Had a belly putter. You know, that's another relic from the past. I and mean, this thing is jammed in his sternum. Mm-hmm. And just this nice pendulum stroke. And he he played the best golf of anyone on Sunday. He would start a little too far back. But Havre was impressive. You know, never heard of him before and hardly heard a peep after. But that was his week. And, uh, you know, it's, you wonder how much he thinks about mm-hmm. that, what could have been, because he, he captured something. You mentioned how tough this course is playing. The 12th hole, like, par, one of the beautiful things about Pebble is their, their par threes are goddamn hard. So hard. I mean, seventh, we talked about it. The 17th is like next level hard. I think it was playing harder than any uh, hole on the course that week. And 12 on Sunday, 200 yards downhill. It's like a full five iron for even the longer players. And the ball, the hole is just tucked on the other side of that front bunker. I mean, there are only three birdies that day. The only way that Ernie got tight, he hit it to about two feet, is he lands it in the rough and the momentum kicks it forward. So, this like that stretch, like you said, absolutely brutal. Um, we get to like the Ernie and Phil are in like the 13 to 14 range. Ernie hits an approach into 13. It comes up short. You can hear as the broadcast is moving to someone else, but Ernie says, how can that ball not f-ing bounce? I don't know if you caught that, but it's beautiful. Well, it's because it is a very steep upslope going to that green. He's hitting from way down the fairway. It's straight uphill. I mean, it's not going to pitch forward like on 10 where it's this downhill ramp to the green. I mean, I did hear that. It made me laugh, but... You know, he got the ball up in the air. and Yes. Let's dive into 14. 14 is interesting. I mean, four, 14 is a love it, hate it golf hole. I love it because you have to hit three great shots. And after this U.S. Open, they wound up redoing the green because the effective landing space up there in that back left was pretty small. But you know what? If you, if you hit two good shots, you're left with a wedge or maybe a nine iron. I mean, you want to win the U.S. Open? Hit the shot. But these guys couldn't do it. I mean... So Ernie's shot into 14. At this point, he's even par. So he's two back. Par five. Has to have a good chance of making a birdie. His shot lands like five paces onto the green. And if you don't know Pebble while you're watching, you're kind of confused because the broadcasters are like, I don't think that shot carried that far. And so it spins back a little bit and it's kind of trickling. All of a sudden, Peter Jacobson says, that's going to roll off the green. It spins back. Basically, it rolls back 15 yards or so. Mickelson from the rough does the exact same thing. It reaches five paces onto the green and rolls off. As you said, they needed to blow up this green because they were talking about it as if it was, you know, a tiny tabletop. Like you have to hit into a perfect spot for it to sit there on the green under these conditions. And what's tricky is like I have never played Pebble, Alan, and you have. You you grew up working there. Eventually on this broadcast, 
you're going to see Tiger Woods go for it and basically just try to hit it into the bunker. You are that hole. I think at this time under those conditions, it was more advantageous to go for it than it was to lay up because you'd rather take a lie that's kind of tricky around the green than one from the fairway 100 yards short. Well, I mean, that front bunker was is a great place to be, and, and Tiger played the hole perfectly. But, you know, Ernie didn't shape his drive correctly, ran through the fairway, so he's in the rough. That affects his ability to, to hit his second shot down far enough. So he's got a little too much club coming in, and he hits it short, and the ball rolls off. Phil hit a good drive. That actually didn't show the second shot. Something went wrong because he was playing from the rough and he couldn't control the, the distance out of the rough. So it landed short. I mean, you can't miss short. It's very simple. These guys have made big mistakes and they paid for it with bogeys. What was interesting is that Gregory Havray does the same thing. He hits it to that kind of three or four, five yards onto the green and rolls back to the same spot. But... Unlike Ernie, unlike Phil, who both can't get up and down, they make bogeys, Havray gets up and down. So he stays at even par. He's two back. Eventually, GMAC's going to screw this hole up too. So GMAC's going to bogey the 14th because he makes a mess going long. He ends up hitting his putter from long and left, rolls up 25 feet past the hole so he can't make par. So all of a sudden, Havray, the Frenchman, he's one shot back. Well, let's just talk about GMAC for a second. I just want to go back to that shot because it's so pivotal. He, he smashes his his fourth shot, with, as you say, with the putter going up over this big mound and then trying to stop it on the flat part of the green. And it rolls way past. And it is a foot or two from trickling all the way off the green, at which point mm-hmm. he's, he's probably going to make a seven, even maybe an eight. I think it will. Oh, he's lucky. That's the first one we've seen today. A little bit like Dustin Johnson. Yeah, exactly. Third shot yesterday. He doesn't realize how lucky he is right now, Roger. He's acting like, oh, it was bad. But, man, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, somehow his ball stopped a foot from the abyss. And that is the kind of break that changes a whole career. It changes a whole life. And... That ball's downwind. There's not. There's no grass on the green left. Like I don't know how it stopped, but it did. You wrote in the game story that he was playing prevent defense, and I think that's exactly true. He was just holding on for dear life, playing prevent. Uh, right around this time, this is about five hours and eight minutes into the broadcast. This is something that uh, I think is very, very funny and 100% ridiculous. But Kevin Van Valkenburg tweeted about it last week. Uh, Phil Mickelson, I'm not even sure what hole he's on. He's left of the fairway, and you go to Dottie Pepper. Phil Mickelson. Another wild tee shot, but he's drawn a very, very good lie this time, 136 yards. And then seconds later, you see his ball is on top of TV cables. <laughs> that, that's 15. Um, I know. It, I think Phil's thinking, if I take the drop, it's going to bury down in the rough. And... <laughs> on the cables, at least you can get your club on the back of the ball. But, I mean, who else would even try that? It's bizarre. Uh, you know, at that point, he's, what, four shots back? He's, he's I just don't it, understand but... how Dottie's, like, he's got a, he's drawn a very good lie <laughs> without saying that it's on TV cables. And then, two, Johnny and Dan Hicks are like, yeah, that's really weird. Why is he doing this? He doesn't hit, like, a horrible or a great shot from the lie. But, like... No, I didn't even know this happened. Like this was undiscussed. I don't understand. <laughs> just, Phil always wants to be the smartest guy in the room, and so I guess he's thinking, well, I can make a par off the TV cables. That that that'll be legendary. Uh, but yeah, it's just he. I think he outsmarted himself in the end. But it, it was mm-hmm. just a, it's just it's just weirdness. I, that's the bottom line. Playing right off of the television cable. Oh, that's how good the lie was around it. I've never seen that before. It's a wonder we're still on the air. Why would you do that? It's a off a wire. I, I don't know. He gets, he gets relief from that if he would have chosen to, but that's the kind of day. It's- As Ernie is kind of kicking it away, I mean, it happens on 17. He played the 17th hole in five over all week, but that hole is just. I mean, it's damn near impossible when it's windy. Uh, Havre is not cracking. 
He uh, he hits a 20-yard bunker shot, tricky bunker shot on 15 to 4 feet. He buries the par putt. All of these elite pros are crumbling around him. He two putts from about 50 feet on 16. He burns the edge. If that thing would have dropped, people would have lost it. One one question for you is like is when it when it comes down to the end here and it's kind of GMAC or have Ray or like one of the other guys is the crowd pulling for Phil still? Is the crowd pulling for anyone? Like, does Havre become the like unsung hero? Yeah, I was running around out there, and for sure, Phil had the crowd. Tiger, you know, was still so close to the scandal. It was people weren't sure if they could root for him or not. But once he's out there playing golf and hitting shots, they want to see something magical. So they're trying mm-hmm. to cheer on Tiger and get him going, even though he looks like a Tiger's dead man at walking. three over at this point, by the way. Yeah, I mean, Tiger's so like he's not that far behind. Hole. So for sure, Havre, you know, he was the classic Cinderella story. And he was kind of this charming, swashbuckling character. And I remember he got to 17T. I don't think they ever showed this on television, but um, the huge grandstand there. And everyone gave him this this rousing ovation. He looked at them and, and kind of recoiled with a smile like, oh, this is for me? He did this little funny, very Frenchy hand gesture, uh, kind of acknowledging the crowd and thanking them. And you know, for sure, I think the last few holes, uh, you know, those of us in golf knew GMAC and appreciated him, and he, he's been winning in Europe, and, you know, he was a legit top 50 player, but, um, you know, I, I think the average fan didn't had yet to fall in love with him and really knew what a great character GMAC was, and so uh, when it came down to two sort of un, relatively unknown Europeans, how Ray was the long shot, and he was, he was hamming it up, and I, I think over the closing holes, he, he was the people's choice. Back at 17, huge putt for Havre to stay at even one behind. You're right. This is the biggest putt of his life. This gives cushion to Graham McDowell if he misses. Didn't hit it. Right in the middle of the hole, perfectly red. Havre moves to one over. GMAC playing one group behind him. He also bogeys 17, so it's back to one-stroke lead. GMAC, he actually had a pretty poor shot on 17. He kind of like overcooked it and short and left uh, of the green into the bunker, but eventually makes his bogey. Uh, Havre smashes his driver on 18 up into the fairway. He hits his approach from 224, and this is where... You know, I think at Augusta, we usually talk on this podcast about the the razor tight margins about, you know, you either carry it over the the creek on 12 and 13 or you don't and you carry it over to the pond on 15 or you don't. Those razor sharp margins aren't always so uh, well known, but if he hits his approach like three yards left on 18 it probably bounds onto the green and he's got 20, 25 feet for a birdie or for uh, an ego putt and guaranteed birdie just about, but he's begging for it to turn over. It doesn't, it goes into that bunker, he hits a really soft kind of high bunker shot, splashes out to 10 feet. Uh, now I don't want to talk about whether he makes it or not yet, but those razor sharp margins, they, they decide whether your birdie putts are easy or hard, whether your par putts are easy or difficult. So, Well, we're talking about how Ray's shot in 18. I don't even think it was three yards. I think it, it's a yard. It's maybe four feet. You know, it could absolutely have, have changed the whole complexion of that tournament, but it, it peeled right into the bunker instead of going left onto the green. So, again, it's the littlest things that define a career and a life. But – but but it's so intense. And then what happens to GMAC like minutes later? This is the six hour and three minute mark. He is walking up the fairway. And granted, the pressure has released because he's 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 safe off the tee. He starts talking to the cameraman. His dad here. Father's Day, all the dads out there. Yep. My dad's out there somewhere though. Kenny is his father. He wanted him to be here. He had- He's literally walking with the camera saying happy Father's Day to the TV audience, to all the fathers out there. How wild is that? That would not happen today. Well, I mean, that's kind of who Graham McDowell is. He's an extrovert and he's a little bit of a ham. And I think that was that was key. He was blown off a little steam. Who does that? I love it. Oh, no, it was it was neat. It was a nice moment. And I, I think that probably gave him, um, 
that, that released some of the tension for him. But yeah, that tee shot on 18, it was so cool, the camera angle, they're right behind the players. And you can see ocean left, trees, bunkers, OB right. I mean, it's it's just one of the great tee shots in golf. And both Hav Ray and GMAC stepped up and hit good ones, and that was impressive. French golfers probably more remembered for what John Vandeville did at the 1999 British Open. I try to think of one who stands out. They've had a lot of fine golfers in the past, but this would be the biggest moment, certainly in that country's golfing history and sporting history, be right up there. Just moves a little left, Roger. Not much break. Yeah, so the guy had putted beautifully the whole round. And then 17, he left that do-or-die putt short. So now, after a very nice bunker shot, he's got 10 feet for birdie to maybe win the U.S. Open. And it was just, uh, I mean, it was like a snap hook putt. It just explodes off the face, low and left, runs about three feet by, just awful. The second he hit it, he knew it. He yanked it, absolutely yanked it. He's going to admit later that he yanked it. Uh but an incredible performance from him. He finishes with a par at one over. As Johnny loves to say, that's pressure. That's U.S. Open pressure. I mean, the whole world's watching. He may never get another shot at it. He knows it. We know it. And he just wasn't up to it. I mean, some guys can make the putt in the last hole, and some can't. And unfortunately, Gregory Havre just could not get it done. Leaves it up to GMAC that he can lay up now. There's a really fun conversation on the broadcast between GMAC and his caddy about what club that they need to hit to get to that sand wedge distance for the par. Uh, eventually, he gets to 25 feet. DJ, mind you, smashes driver. Then he hits it onto the green. He's got an eagle putt, um, and he three he three jacks on 18. That is perfect final round. DJ five over finish for him. Final round 82, the highest final round score by a 54 hole leader since 1911 so in a hundred years no one as a 54 hole leader has shot worse but poor fred mcleod you know he's been dead for decades and now we're dredging up his 83 because dj played so bad did not make a single birdie the whole uh, round and i mean pebble beach is a, is a petite I mean, how many times does dj not make a birdie in the round since like dj doesn't play birdie free golf just about anywhere it's no, it's incredible. And Pebble Beach is a very petite, you know, ballpark. He had he had short irons all day, but he just he just he couldn't get it done. It was just an absolute physical and mental breakdown. And man, it's it really you hate to say it again and again, but it really was foreshadowing what was to come. I mean, DJ's won twenty tournaments on tour, he's gonna be a Hall of Famer. But unless something unless he goes crazy here that in his late thirties it's, he's going to be one of the, the great what ifs, and uh, we're always going to look back at, at, at this open as as really was kind of told us what was to come, and uh, you know he played great at Oakmont, he deserved to win there, but man, um, in some ways this is a defining Dustin Johnson performance. I hate to say it, but it's true. In his last start a couple of weeks ago in Wales, in the last 80 years, only four players have won this championship coming off a victory in their previous start. There's just one little putt left here to grab the United States Open. And Graham McDowell's dream has come true. For Northern Ireland, he's a U.S. Open champion at Pebble Beach. In the game story, you reminded me of one incredible fact is that GMAC makes one birdie during the final round. I mean, to be the winner of the U.S. Open, you think you got to kind of do something great on Sunday. And the reality is what his great was, he made 13 pars. 13 pars on a U.S. Open Sunday is great. That's kind of the bottom line. But what's interesting is he went out three shots out of the lead. You expect... If he had a big cushion, he could just make a bunch of pars and take it home. But, I mean, to start three down and to make one birdie, um, it just tells you what, you know, it was a day where everyone backwards. Another thing that you included in the game story is that there is no defining shot of this major. I think that's another reason why it might be underrated is just like we know that GMAC won and that it was a pretty, pretty fun Sunday, but there is not one shot that – you think back, 
that was how GMAC won the major. That's not how, like, that's, that's weird. Yeah. It's, you know, I mentioned earlier in, in the pod, the, the Nicholas one iron, the Watson and kite chip ins, um, Tigers heroics in 2000. But yeah, there was, there was, there was not a, I mean, really the defining shot of the 2010 us open is, is Dustin's flubs in the rough on number two for first lefty, then righty that defined the tournament that threw the whole thing into chaos and and from that point on, G Mac made the fewest mistakes, and that's how he won. Yeah, and and uh, I mean, if anything, Havre's I guess missed putt. Um, but even if you continued that uh, run through history, like you just said, Gary Woodland had a signature moment, probably two of them in his final putt, maybe three. Gary Woodland hit that wicked three wood onto the on and just over the green on 14. He chips from on the green on 17 and then he makes the 30 footer for the win. Like that, this course creates memorable shots, but GMAC just didn't hit any of them. No, but I mean, the U S open is often a war of attrition. It just is. And so, um, you know, all credit to, to GMAC. He was a last man standing and that's what it's about. And, uh, you know, it was, I mean, how great is that celebration? I mean, to me, the defining moment is really on 18 when, when his dad and uh, his manager, Connor Ridge, um, they, they come running out and, uh, you know, and they're, they're screaming and, and they're, you can barely tell what language they're speaking because they have these thick Irish accents. And he and, and G-Max's father says, you know, what a great kid you are. Or something. I can't remember the exact, but it was cute. I mean, the, the, the relief and the, the jubilation you know, that's what it's all about. So I, that's probably the, the moment I, I remember most is when I was standing right there behind the green and just just the joy of, of, of those guys was, was infectious. If I've got my time zones right, it's around uh, 2.30 in the morning in Ireland. Are they watching? I think they'll be watching. There'll be a few pints of Guinness maybe going down uh, right about now. Are the pubs still open, or will they keep them open? Well, I think the uh, I think they might extend drinking hours a little bit tonight. Hopefully, um. part of my mandate writing these game stories for SI is I have to take readers places they can't go. I have to bring to life a tournament in a fresh way because by the time they get the magazine, they know that Graham McDowell's won the U.S. Open. You know what? What can I offer that's different? And so, I knew that he was going to be out and about celebrating the victory because that's who he is. And he has this little band of pirates he travels with. And um, so I started calling all the Irish bars in Monterey and Carmel. And they, I was like, we haven't seen him. We haven't seen him. And so I'm typing I'm, the crushing deadline pressure. And I make a second round of calls like, no, no, GMAC. I'm thinking, well, maybe he's exhausted or maybe he's just, you know, having a party in his room. So I, um, I, I file my story. And... Back then, um, the Shipnook family had a very foxy babysitter who's about 22 years old. And she comes over a few days after the U.S. Open, and she's like, oh, my gosh, look at this picture. Of, I can't remember this guy's name, but I met him Sunday night, and I, I think he won the U.S. Open. Look at this trophy. And sure enough, it's GMAC. It was, like, it was like midnight. It was right after I made my last round of calls. He'd blown into the Brophy's Tavern, which was kind of a catty hangout. And I'd already called there, but I just missed him. And he wound up behind the bar, spraying people down with, uh, with you know, the little soda guns and drinking out of the trophy. And it would have been so great to get all that for the story. We could have been the cover image. And I, I still kick myself. Like, I should have just gotten in the car because Brophy's was kind of the obvious place. That, that had been a hub all week. But uh, I missed him. And uh, so, you know, we all have our regrets. I'm sure Phil regrets the three-putt on number four. And Ernie regrets his second shot in the ten. I regret not finding you know Graham McDowell Sunday night in Carmel when he was celebrating the Open. So Graham McDowell is the first European to win the U.S. Open since Tony Jacklin forty years ago in nineteen seventy. Ernie Els shoots two over, and uh, that's one shot better than his score in two thousand, which he lost to Tiger by fifteen strokes. He loses by two to Graham McDowell. So that that just tells you how freaking amazing tiger was in 2000 uh before we wrap up here alan we have to do the honorable roberto divisenzo award for what could have been and uh there's a couple different things here obviously you can talk about dj shooting an 82 uh, but we knew that was coming you know i think for me what could have been is if tiger and ernie 
shoot under par, they win. On Sunday, if either of those dudes shoots under par, they win. If Phil shoots one under, he's in a playoff. If you give me Tiger, Ernie, and Phil, these dudes are going to shoot one or two under. I'm taking all of them, and I'm running to the sports book. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, the 2010 U.S. Open is as much about who didn't win as who did. No disrespect to Grab McDowell, but... You know, it was right there for the taking, and Phil blew so many chances on the front nine, and then Ernie's putter got wobbly coming down the stretch, and Tiger just looked like a dead man walking. I mean, he had he had no fire, he had no fight, and I mean, one of the funny moments of the telecast is on the first green, he's got this big bending birdie putt, and he leaves it way short, and and Johnny blurts out, "That's one of the worst putts I've ever seen Tiger Woods hit," and but it was true, and he he missed the par putt, you know, three jack to start, and. You know, I think he bogeyed five of the first ten holes. He just, he had no life. And yet, he was still in it. He was always within three or four shots. He could have done anything on the back nine. And um, But, you know, Tiger was heading to some dark days. I mean, the, the nadir of the scandal was still coming. And um, it was almost like he was out of emotion. He was out of energy. His, his, he just, he couldn't summon anything. And, you know, he hit rock bottom a few months later when, uh, you know, on the golf course, he's, I remember at Firestone, he was shooting in the eighties and it was just gone mentally and emotionally. So uh, that was a prelude of, of the dark days. Um, you know, of course we know it has a happy ending with Tiger. He makes it back to the mountaintop, but with Phil, maybe not. I mean, it's a great golf course for him. You know, he's won at Pebble Beach five times now at that point, he'd won three. Uh, it, it played short. He didn't need to hit a lot of drivers. I mean, he'll, he's just coming off the masters victory. He'll never have a better chance at the U S open than he did then. And he, he couldn't get it done, so it's it's uh, it's really it's 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 a heartbreaking open in that standpoint. And I will say though, we talked about all the mistakes are made. The first hour and a half is some of the most fun golf you'll ever see. I mean, is it's eagle putts, it's Dustin's going, Dustin's losing the plot. Like it's worth watching the beginning of the tournament just because it's so much happens, and then it just settles into this to this slow grind, but. GMAC uh, literally said afterward to reporters, when you have Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, and Ernie Els there, you're not expecting to have Gregory Havre be the guy you're fending off, which kind of tells you everything about this Sunday. So um, It's not a classic U.S. Open, but it's a very, very interesting one. And it, uh, it tells you a lot about the protagonists. And it tells you a lot about Pebble Beach. And I think it's worth checking out, um, even, even though in some ways, you know, the right guy didn't win. All right, well, we can leave it at that. Thanks to Alan Shipnuck for joining. Thanks to you for listening. Folks, the U.S. Open is still happening this year. It's the middle of our three majors this fall. It's the week of September 14th, the middle of college football season. Absolute mayhem coming our way at Winged Foot. Get yourself ready.